0: About four months ago, this stray cat showed up at our door. He was skinny, he's all emaciated and full of worms. This wasn't doing well at all and we decided we would put him on our back porch and try to get him back to health. And over the course of four months and about five hundred dollars in vet bills later, we got him to where he's nice and healthy and he's a really good cat. We already have three cats so we can't keep him and uh, that's just too many for a small house. But we've been trying to find a home for this guy and i thought that maybe i would put it out there to you folks folks who are listening in maybe if you're somewhere close to nashville you might have room for a cat you might want somebody to be part of your family he's as sweet as anything he's actually a lot sweeter than the cats that we have inside but they're family and they're not going anywhere and uh, anyway he's been uh, neutered had all of his shots you know completely vetted and he's healthy and he's ready for your home so won't you If you think you might have space in the end for one more, send me an email at info at com, and we'll try to find this guy a home. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Joe Pug. Joe is a singer and a songwriter, and you can find out everything you need to know about Joe at JoePugMusic.com. Joe was nice enough to stop by my house here in East Nashville when he was in town, and he didn't have a lot of free time, so he kind of went out of his way to make it over here before the gig, and I appreciate that. And I actually really enjoyed being around Joe. He seemed like a really nice guy, really good guy, and easy to be around. And uh, I think we had a good conversation.
1: So here's Joe Pug. Yeah, I went to uh, to college, undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I was there for three years and uh, was studying playwriting. I was writing plays. I was in plays. Um, my grandfather was a professor of theater at the University of Maryland. And so I would kind of grown up doing that sort of theatrical stuff and and liked it and then I had a teacher in high school that uh really inspired me and uh changed my life in a lot of ways and so I went into that uh to that program at UNC to do uh mainly playwriting.
0: You want to talk about that teacher a little bit?
1: Oh, yeah, that teacher in high school. I mean, I think everyone who's lucky enough to get one like this, uh, he was just a guy who um, he'd worked in comedy for a long time in the D.C. area and kind of had to get a real job, you know, like got married and uh, they wouldn't have kids, so he had to, you know, get the real job thing going on. So he came. My freshman year was his first year at that uh, high school, and him and I just hit it off like He would do all these – he was really into this French playwright named Moliere who basically uh, wrote these farces that were loosely based on Commedia dell'arte plays. And Commedia dell'arte was um, a form of theater that happened in Italy way back in the day uh, where the plays were improvised, except all the people in the company would play like their stock character, like Scapino was, you know – Young guy that was uh, always getting into trouble. Pantalone was the old man that was a hypochondriac. El Capitan was the guy who was, you know, was boasting all the time but afraid of a mouse. So this guy, uh, Moliere, wrote these plays, kind of codified what were originally improvised plays. Um, and this teacher that I had in high school had us do these Moliere plays, except we would improvise on them the same way that they used to be done. And Man, for four years, like, we just had so much fun. We would do these plays, and eventually a bunch of the school was coming to them because it wasn't like that Oklahoma crap, you know, or or whatever. Like, it was actually, like, fun shit that people would come and pay five bucks with their student ID to come see, and and we would just, oh, man, we had so much fun. I haven't thought about this in a really long time. but So I'm guessing you were close to D.C.? Mm-hmm.
0: I know there's like a music scene that, that happened there with uh with Fugazi and yeah. Black Flag and all of that. I'm guessing that all happened before...
1: That happened before my time, but it really... Because I was also playing in bands uh, uh, from a pretty young age. And even though, you know, Fugazi and Rites of Spring and Black Flag and all those guys came before my time, the ethos that they kind of did business by really cast a wide shadow over all the music that was done in that area by people who were, you know, young kids just starting out. And so that idea of like, do it yourself. Don't charge people a bunch of money to come to a show. Don't be a dick. Don't act like a rock star. You know, um, you know, they took it to the point where, you know, Fugazi didn't sell merch at their shows. He refused to come out of buy it in that way. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I've taken it for myself, but uh you know, I yeah, I mean he looms large in my imagination. And I think anyone that was playing music in uh, you know, D C, Maryland, Virginia in that area, I don't know if it's still like that for young kids coming up, but he loomed large, uh in my imagination and the imagination of my band at the time for sure. Honestly, more than anything else, it's just a really positive way to live your life. I think the just in a very American way to live your life too, to not rely on some big corporation. You know, I think a lot of not selling out, people always think to themselves on the one hand, like they really stress the fact, well, if you go to work for a corporation, they control what you do. But I think another whole side of it that people don't really think about either is like, um, it's fun to succeed on your own. Like you if you succeed with a corporation, like, you know, how much of... It was because of you and your heart and your hard work, or how much of it was just because you have this big machine here that you just happen to be lucky enough to be a part of for a hot minute. You know, yeah, I, I agree. I, I really like that ethos for life. I had gone to school at North Carolina for about three years and I was unhappy. Uh, it was a great place to go to school, it, you know, very nice place and nice campus, nice people, but I was really unhappy. Um, I've always wanted to do some sort of creative work for a living. i always wanted, it's always been really important to me, and I felt like I wasn't, not only was I not learning anything at school, but um, in some ways um, a lot of my intuitions, which I felt were the one thing that I had to offer people um, in my voice, you know, was kind of being stamped out of what I was doing. Um, You know, I'm not the greatest singer, and I'm not the greatest guitar player, and I mean, not the greatest technical writer either, but, you know, I felt like I've always had this one thing that I've been able to say, and they were kind of pushing me away from that, and I said, well, I don't, if I lose this, I don't have anything, (laughs) you know? Like, there's just, there's nothing uh, for me to fall back on there. So I went back for my senior year and I was getting ready to start the year. And uh, it's like the night before classes started and I was sitting in the center of campus and these girls walked by, these young girls walked by and they were just having the most inane conversation I'd ever heard in my entire life and just laughing like jackasses and something just, it was literally like I snapped. Like, you know, if I was a different person in different circumstances, you know, that snapping moment would have been me going on, like, a rampage somewhere or something. But, what? you know, I was lucky enough that my life led up to me just – I stood up there in that spot. I walked back to the apartment that I would moved into with some buddies the day before, got my guitar and a few things, and I jumped into this Ford Ranger that I had at the time. Uh, it was a great truck. Uh, and I drove that – that night I drove – I got to about – somewhere in West Virginia, I think it was Wheeling, West Virginia, and I slept in the parking lot of a Howard Johnson. And then I finished the next day and I got to Chicago where a buddy of mine was living. And um, it was that trip and my whole first week there was uh, the most magical experience of my life. And I I will never experience anything like that ever again. It, It was like every move I knew exactly what to do the whole time, you know knew exactly how to get there, how to get to my friend's place. When I was at his place, I knew how to... I just walked out his front door and walked until I saw a job site in his neighborhood. And I asked to see the general contractor and asked him if he needed a laborer. And he said, yeah, and I was working for him the next day. And then I looked in the Chicago Reader later that day, and I found the one... I had like 600 bucks to my name when I moved there. And I found the one apartment that was the one room I could rent for 300 bucks a month because I needed 300 for the first month, 300 for security deposit. Found that one room, called the guy up. He said, I already have someone that wants the room. And I said, I was like, well, would it make a difference if I told you I really needed it? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I guess it would. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy gave me, this guy Mark Danahy, who I still talk to today, gave me the room. And in like three days... I had driven to Chicago, and I had a job, and I had an apartment. (laughs) I was just, and I was like, you know, up making Folgers in the morning uh, in Chicago, in this city that I'd been to one time before to visit my buddy. And I was just there, and I was just all of a sudden, poof, I was a working stiff. You know what I mean? And it was amazing. It was, you know, it was a really, really happy, happy time for me. It really... uh, made me feel really empowered in a way that I had never felt before. Did you learn some carpentry skills? You know, man, not really. My dad was a carpenter, and so that's how I kind of knew the lingo to to go and get the job. And I'd worked for a couple other guys in Maryland before that. Um, and I picked up a little bit of stuff from the crew I was on in Chicago. It was mainly Mexican guys. Um, and they did, like, framing uh lot of steel stud stuff too, but I was all right. You know, I was fine, but I was, you know, I was literally always, my boss was always busting my balls because he'd, he'd be walking around the the job site and see uh two by four scraps with like scraps of lyrics written on them and stuff. He'd get all pissed (laughs) off at me and stuff. So now, you know, I never, romantically, I liked the idea of one day I could, You know, if this business ever gets to me, I'll just fucking go back to being a car. You know, I say it to my girlfriend all the time, like, maybe this is the year that I just go back to building houses. She's like, you forget that you don't really know how to build houses. Show your back's against the wall. Steve picked me up to play, he put out that Towns album about four or five years ago, and he tapped me to open entire tour in the US not the entire tour I think Hayes Carl did some of it and Rhett Miller did some of it too but I did a lot of that tour in the US and in Europe and it was kind of a head trip because since it was his town's tour he was playing solo and at that time I was playing solo too so we'd go to these theaters in different towns with thousands of people and there would be two people on stage at night first me and then Steve fucking Earl you know what I mean (laughs) And luckily, I was like 23. Th- if something like that happened to me now, I would know enough now to be scared shitless, you know. Because I was, when he tapped me to open this tour, I was not really that far removed from playing open mics and stuff like that. Like, 23 years old, had played a couple, been on some short tours with friends of mine before. But this is like, you know, this is zero. This is um, single eight to the big leagues, you know. Uh, did did Justin hip him to you? Or, or Rhett he... Miller, actually. Uh, I did an, one or two opening gigs for Rhett, and they share a manager. And next thing you know, we get a call, um, and they say, you know, Steve Hurl wants you to open his whole tour. It's was like, Jesus Christ, man. It's amazing. So um, I ended up doing that whole tour with him, and he really – Everyone needs, like, that first hand up into the business if you don't know anyone to begin with, and Steve gave that to me, and uh, he's the one that got me to quit smoking because we were playing at a theater in Dallas, and I got, like, really into the fact of, like, I like to – I felt like I wasn't really, like, earning my keep on the tour, so at the end of the show, I, I'd take it upon myself to – after the show, I'd have, like, a bottle of water and a towel for him, like, waiting side stage like I'm a fucking boxing trainer or something. <laughs> It's such a jackass idea. I don't know where I, but like that was my idea. And then my other idea was, is I was going to hold the curtain for him, you know, like wait for him, lights to go down. I'd hold the curtain for him when he'd go back on stage sometimes. And we were playing the Granada in Dallas and I'm standing there with my hand on the curtain and um getting ready to open it for him. He's kind of standing facing me and I'm like puffing on a cigarette, like blowing the fucking thing in his face before he goes on stage and he looks at me he goes you know, if you want to do this job, you're going to have to quit that, you know? And I said, yeah, yeah, Steve, but I just, I like it so much. And uh, he looks at me and he just goes, yeah, well, I liked heroin. And they just walked straight (laughs) on stage. It's like, that's a pretty good point, Steve. (laughs) You know, the first time I opened for him it was a similar thing where i just just gotten started out and we got a call and it was like we'd submitted for some Ritter dates and uh, he was like, yeah, come on down to the Beachland Ballroom. He's playing he's playing the big room and come on down and you can you can ride on the bus for the three shows you can do. Uh, so great. So I took a plane down to Cleveland and I got to the venue like super early because I had taken a flight. And so I took a cab over to the venue and they let me into some back room and I'm just sitting there. And I didn't appreciate this for what it was at the time, but I appreciate it now that I know how everything works in that I was sitting in there. There's no one in the venue, hardly at all. And then I look and I can see Josh has walked into the building and he's like he's like walking around looking for something. I'm like, oh, wow, it's Josh Ritter. Holy shit, like I wonder what he's looking for. And then he comes over, he was looking for me because he knew I was going to be there and he just wanted to find me and welcome me. And at the time, I just thought like, oh, well, that's how tours work. You know, the headliner comes and finds the opening act and welcomes them <laughs> to the tour. And, you know, I didn't realize how completely that is not the case ever. You know, I've done so many gigs where you never even meet the headliner. And, you know, he knew that I was a young dude in a city that I hadn't been in before, in a venue that I hadn't been in before, that I was there early, that I was probably super nervous. He went out of his way to get off of his bus at one o'clock in the afternoon, search an empty venue for me, find me and like, welcome me to the crew. And I mean, that's the type of duty is man. Um, then later that night I was really trying to, um, I've become friends with his band at this point, but at that time I was like, really trying to impress them big time. We were back. I'd never been on a tour bus before and I finished the gig and load, help them load the trailer and Josh is out he, you know he's always out talking to fans for an hour, two hours after the gig, so I'm on the bus with his band, and uh, you've been to the beachland before right yeah. so you know that's in a it's a pretty rugged neighborhood, you know there's not there's not a lot of stuff open at uh you know two o'clock in the morning, and um his keyboard player Sam, they had some vodka, and Sam said, "God, what I would do for a greyhound right now and uh, so I was really eager to impress and I just stood up, you know, and I said, You want a greyhound? I want to go get you some grapefruit juice right now. And I storm off the fucking bus. I mean, just a jackass, you know. And uh going to the club and the one thing I was thinking is like, they gotta have grapefruit juice at this club. And I go in, they're like, no, what the fuck are you talking? Get out of here, kid. Like what you can't have grape <laughs> grapefruit juice from us. Just get out of here. What do you who do you think you are? And so I walk out and I'm like, I can't go back on that. I, you know, I went so balls to the wall with this declaration that I cannot walk back on this bus without grapefruit juice. And so I walk, I start walking around that sketchy ass neighborhood at two o'clock in the morning. I don't know what I'm looking for. And then they finally, I look around the corner and there's like this one like kind of hipster establishment that has like infiltrated that neighborhood, you know, like the first one, is infiltrated and I look and I kind of jog over there and they're like closing their doors and I like bang on the window and like some dudes wiping down tables. And I'm like, he let me in for some reason. And I said, man, you don't know me, but, um, I really need some grapefruit juice. And, uh, he's like, all right, man. And so he took me into like their back cooler and he had like this wonderful like carton of like perfectly chilled organic, like, awesome freshly squeezed amazing grapefruit juice and uh he was like he's he was like you you got five bucks <laughs> I was like yeah man i got i gave him five bucks and i came back on the bus and um uh was not greeted as as much of a hero as i thought that i should have been at the time probably because uh i was such a tool about the way that i presented it in the first place and they didn't know what i'd gone through to get it but uh but yeah, yeah. I made mean, it happen. <laughs> yeah, there used to be, when I was in Chicago I and booking myself and stuff like that, I booked like little tours. There used to be a cool website called, I think it was called Do DIY USA or DIY USA. In it. And this is before, this is six or seven years ago. So before like house concerts and stuff had become like a thing that people did and there's like a network of them. This was just, you know, if you had shows or whatever, you know, people would list it on there and you'd go. And sometimes it'd be house concerts, sometimes it'd be like a little cafe or whatever. So I used to book tours on that. And there was this one stop that I would go to in Eau Claire, Wisconsin called the Acoustic Cafe. And the deal with that gig was, um, you know, you got whatever tips you could make, but it was also had a really good sandwich shop attached to it. And you get a free sandwich for playing. And that was like on the little description for booking the gig. And I'd played that gig. I went up three or four times in the course of a couple of years to play the acoustic cafe, make 50 bucks in tips and eat a free sandwich. And, um, but these tours that I would go on were like really rugged. You know what I mean? Just like sleeping in the truck, you know, no one at the gigs, the type of shit like where you show up and it's a real it's a real difference in your career when, you know, at the start of your career, every time you show up at a club or whatever, whoever's running it is just your adversary and they're pissed off to see you. So your, <laughs> your career, you've really passed a threshold when you get there and the promoter's just kind of, there's a promoter to begin with. And so, you know, that's what these tours were. Like you show up and whoever's running the place is just, they don't want to see you. They fucking hate you, you know. You're the guy that's going to want a bunch of free shit and whatever. Um so I'd been there three or four times. They'd always been really nice to me. And I show up this time um, after being on this tour, you know, indignity after yet another indignity on this tour, you know, just kind of, what am I doing with my life? I need to just <laughs> stop this right now. And But I was thinking to myself, you know, I want to be at the Acoustic Cafe. They're always nice to me. And i had been thinking about this fucking sandwich for all day. You know, I was broke. And so I get there. And they got this new manager there. Um, And he, this is just like some crappy little sandwich shop in the middle of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. But this guy had to do this whole routine where like, he had to like let everyone know that there was like a new sheriff in town at the acoustic cafe. And things aren't going, you know, not on my fucking watch, like that type of shit. So I walk in and there's immediately like all these rules and You know, and it's like, dude, I'm just going to plug my guitar in and play some songs and people are going to, Look at this shitty artwork on the wall and go home. You know it'll be fine. And he was just, but he had all these new different rules. And I remember one of the rules was you don't get a free sandwich anymore. No, whatever. I go up. <laughs> I go up after he gives me the whole rules. I go up and I'd say, all right, well, I'd like my sandwich, please. And uh, the person that I asked for it, they get they get kind of weird and they're like, ah, oh, I'm sorry, I have to talk to Paul or whatever. They have Paul come over, and Paul goes, it's not a free sandwich anymore. It's a free half sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) I could totally deal with having like a sandwich taken away from me, but having half a sandwich (laughs) taken away from you is like, to me, was the most, um, just the most demeaning thing that has ever happened to me. You know, take the full fucking thing, you know? Don't take half a fucking sandwich from me. No, no, come. <laughs> on. It's just a middle. It's totally not about the money at that point. It's, it's about like I don't know. Well, if you're listening, Paul, this is the first time I've ever told that story, and <laughs> we'll be back soon. Yeah, I got a. I got a really good haste. story. It involves. You didn't play poker with him, did you? you didn't. But I heard on your. Uh, I heard on your program him talk about what a fucking mark he is at the table, apparently, but he likes to play um, We did some shows with Hayes like August of last year. They were doing some really cool shows like three show Run in Colorado, him and his band. They were doing three shows in three like kind of strange locations. one of them was the Chautauqua place in Boulder, and one of them was like at this farm in between uh Denver and Colorado Springs. Actually, it was a ranch. And it's like a working ranch. And I didn't know what to expect. Me and my band go down to open for Hayes. And it's fucking cowboys. Like we're playing for a bunch of cowboys out of this place. And so as you can imagine, my my kind of semi-literate brooding folk music went over swimmingly (laughs) with, with the cowboys. And then Hayes and his band got on stage and just kicked ass. And after it was done, um, you know, Hayes' tour manager came over and said, okay, guys, well, we're staying in the bunkhouse tonight with the Cowboys. And I was like, all right, well, if it's free, I guess we're going to stay in the bunkhouse. And the ranch was so big that to drive from where the gig was, which was just a stage made out of hay bales in a field, to drive from there to the bunkhouse, it was like, you know, going about 30 or 40 miles per hour, it was like a 10-minute drive. Like, huge ranch. We pull up to the ranch house in the complete dark and um, someone turns on a light and walks out to greet us. And it was a girl. It was a girl cowhand. She was maybe 21 or 22. And she was very, um, very you know, reserved and taciturn and but, you know, welcoming. And she showed us to, like, the cots that were set up And we, us and Hayes' band, we had a bottle of whiskey and we said, I forget what her name was, but we said, hey, you know, we're not quite ready to go to bed. Can you point us in a direction here in the ranch that we can walk and sit down and drink this booze? Um, And she said, well, I'll take you to a good spot. You know, I'm not ready to go to bed either, so I'll take you. So we walk with her, we climb like a fence and we walk over like this open pasture and after about a half a mile or three quarters of a mile, we come up on like a dry creek bed and there's a cottonwood tree. And you know how cottonwood trees can kind of, they can almost bend and go parallel with the ground to a certain degree. So th- that's what this one was doing over the, tree, the creek bed for about um, 10 or 12 feet. And so there was like nine of us and we went up and we sat like it was a park bench over this creek in this cottonwood tree. And we just passed around this bottle of whiskey and looked and it was beautiful. And there was, you know, the moon was rising or setting and uh, it was just a very peaceful moment. And we couldn't have been there for more than a half hour. And um, we said, all right, well, this is great. Let's go back to the place. But as we get out of the tree, we realize that this girl is completely out of proportion with the amount of whiskey that's been drinking out of this bottle Fucking shit hammered. Like, can't put one foot in front of the other. Just messy twenty-first birthday. Just horribly, horribly drunk. Right, and we're kind of having to like help her. She's stumbling. We don't know what's happening because she was sober as a judge when we got there. And there's nine of us in this tree, and half the bottle of whiskey hasn't been drank yet. You know. So there's there's only so much alcohol that could be in her bloodstream at this point, and she is just tanked so we help her walk back like this three quarters of a mile help her over the fence and we go and we sit down around the bonfire at the bunkhouse sit down there and she's kind of swaying there and then she picks me out of everybody she points at me and she says you need to go to bed and everyone kind of chuckles for a second and I kind of chuckle and I said you know well I'm gonna stay up for a little bit you know and just kind of try To keep the conversation going and but she won't let it, she won't drop it. She, she starts moving closer to me and she goes, You need to go to bed. And um, I was like, Look, you know, I think you've had a little bit too much to drink, and why don't you go to bed yourself? And we'll be fine, we'll let ourselves in. Um, and now she really won't let it go and she's like, Put her hand on my shoulder. So I stand up to kind of like, uh, I don't know what I was gonna do, I was gonna like deal with her or something like that, and uh. The next thing I know, this girl punched me in the fucking face <laughs> harder than I've been punched since I was, like, 12 years old. Like, she fucking clocked me, dude. <laughs> like, dude, and this is in front of, like, Hayes' whole band, my fucking band. And, like, uh, so all I know to do at this point is, like, like, what, what am I going to do? Am I gonna hit her back or something? no? Like, so I kind of like, kind of put her in a hold for a second, you know, just kind of pretty neutral hold and trying to get her to calm down, and she won't. Meanwhile, all the guys around the campfire, no one's helping; everyone's just fucking howling, you know. <laughs> and uh, and then out of nowhere, because um, I don't know where Hayes had been to this point, he Hayes just kind of like materialized and. Like, uh, she went from being, like, this completely, like, feral, drunk animal. He was able to, he was, like, a hostage negotiator or something. Like, everyone that gets in that dude's presence, like, you know, you, you interviewed him and hung with him before. He's just a very calming yeah. presence. And it was, like, immediately, like, this girl, like, settled down. And so Hayes got her settled down, and apparently she had a boyfriend in the place, so he went and woke up the boyfriend and, and got it all done. And uh, I thought that was the end of it until he started his set the next night and i think the first words he started his set with were like um it's been a great tour we've been out here in colorado played some great shows and joe pug got punched in the face by a girl <laughs> <laughs>
0: appreciate you coming over and sitting down in my living room and chatting with me pleasure was mine man that's well, beautiful maybe i'll uh try to stroll out to the gig tonight and, uh,
1: well uh, you said you'd give me a lift man i, <laughs> I, I at least need that <laughs> i'll give you a ride <laughs>
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Joe for coming over to my house here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Joe at joepugmusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy. We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at OtisGibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.